Last week we had Bill Gates for dinner here and he said that he has a ridiculous amount of money and it's so hard <laughs> to find appropriate ways to do good with the money. Yeah. So what does money mean for you being the first person uh, in history uh, that has uh, a net worth of a uh, three-digit amount of billion? The only way that I can see to uh, deploy this much financial resource is by converting my Amazon winnings into space travel. So that's basically, Blue Origin is expensive enough to be able to use that fortune. Um, and I'm currently uh, liquidating about a billion dollars a year of Amazon stock to fund Blue Origin. And uh, I plan to continue to do that. Um, so and you know so because you're I mean you're right you're not gonna you're not gonna spend it on like a second you know dinner out. Hello, how's everybody doing tonight? Uh, welcome to this episode of Left Reckoning. My name is David Griscom. Joined tonight by my friend, comrade, and co-host Matt Leck. Howdy, folks. <laughs> This should be a good one. Uh, tonight, uh, we have a little bit of a flip of the, uh, the script. Uh, tonight, we're going to be joined by Ben Burgess, a good old friend of, of ours for a very long time over at TMBS. He'll be joining us for his Left Reckoning debut. We're really excited for that. Um, he's going to be breaking down uh, censorship and uh, big tech, but also bringing a little bit of his trademark logic for the left. Logic. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that. Um, then later we're going to do a pretty deep dive into what's going on in Ecuador. Could there be a return to the pink tide? Uh, we also have an update on the fight for democracy in Haiti uh, and potentially a justice in both uh, Bolivia and Brazil. Uh, so some big international stories today. Um, but to start off, we really, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that I have a hard time Um not just diving headfirst into every time we see it, which is this bizarre liberal secession fantasy that we see from time to time. And we'll get to all of that in a second, but I know that Matt has some really good sound from the fight uh, in Alabama right now, where workers at this, this Amazon facility are fighting to unionize, right? But you also need to understand, because this has been a top line story, there is a revitalized union movement in Alabama, as there is across the South. And that's going to be a big part of what we're going to try to be covering on Left Reckoning. Just as a little bit of a teaser, uh, next week, we're going to be joined uh, by some good comrades and uh, left union organizers in Alabama to talk about not just what's going on at the Amazon facility in Bessemer, Alabama, uh, but also across the state, along with um, uh, Marxist economist Grace Blakely. So a little bit of that local, uh, regional uh, left-wing flair, along with that international style. Um, but we got this right here, Matt. You want to set this up for me? This is from at a more perfect union, uh, us. Um, it's a good, I think, uh, but up, it's a four minute clip. Uh, just put a little bit of it for you here. Um, and, uh, it kind of, 
I mean, Jeff Bezos can't figure out what more to do with his money than space travel. I would suggest maybe uh, allowing more bathroom breaks for some of your workers as a, you know, a, a very, very, very uh, mm. bare minimum. Um, so here's some of these uh, workers. If I had the opportunity to talk to Jeff Bezos face to face, I would really want to ask him, have he ever worked in a warehouse before? Have he sweated for 10 to 12 hours a day and not being able to go to the restroom when he needed to go? And the issue of, um, of working conditions, I'm very proud of Same our everywhere. working conditions. They got cameras. Mm-hmm. They watching us. I would say. It's a lot of walking. It's a lot of fast pace. It's a lot of climbing upstairs. It's just a lot for the human body. It's tiring. It's consistent. It's, it's, it's fast speed. It's unsafe because you consistently working fast pace 10 hours, only, only two breaks. They're getting treated like robots, and, and it's not fair because even robots break down sometimes. I have issues when ladies are talking about TOT time, uh, time off task, when they have to go use the restroom. When they saying that the restroom could be on the other side of the building, that they have to take their walk so far and they're timing them. And when they run out of time, people are calling me emotional like, Michael, I'm on last chance. They said it's extremely hot in there. They said they have had people to pass out because of the extreme hotness in there. Who get docked I get TOT time for going to the bathroom. Who get... I mean, what more do you need to really see? No, I mean, and next time you hear some doofus going on about how Jeff Bezos represents some kind of, you know, futuristic visionary leadership, show him that. Because that is the real legacy of Amazon and of Jeff Bezos. It has not been innovation. It has been about finding new ways to squeeze people to the breaking point. Absolutely. And the fact is, is that people are starting to stand up and and fight back and get organized and recognizing that the power that we have is immense, but we have to start standing together. And I'm really excited to be talking uh, next week with the, uh, the Valley labor report about that, um, you know, the fight in Alabama and across the, uh, you know, across the state of, of, sorry, across the state of Alabama, across the South, because this is what we're seeing right now is the new phase of, of, of capitalism in a lot of ways can seem very different than the way that we imagine, uh, you know, the kind of more traditional idea of like exploitation under capitalism. Um, but fundamentally it's just the same old stuff, which is just using people as machines and pushing them to their breaking point. Yeah. And just to widen the scope a little bit internationally, like the more things change, the more they say the same as I was reading a little bit about Haley and Haiti in the, uh, good neighbor policy era where there's literally a, a clause where they had to pass any legislation with the u.s ambassador right and fast forward to the obama administration when they want to uh pass a minimum wage increase and haynes and levi uh come through and say uh no we're gonna need to carve out for that because we are making a lot of money off of 23 cents an hour uh wages for these people no, and honestly, Matt, I think that's a good, I mean, because look, we all know, and we've talked about this all on this show, the connections, for example, with the Obama administration uh, and Amazon, right? A lot of these people who worked in the Obama administration, most notably Jay Carney, right, um, have gone on to have a very, very profitable roles uh, in the Amazon corporation 
in fact, their main job being uh, demonizing workers who were fighting back against unfair conditions during COVID, right? Um, and I wanted to bring to bring that up to make this 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 point about this kind of weird regional obsession that a lot of liberals have about when they're when they're trying to talk about the rest of the country, right? And this is like the left secession stuff. Uh, there was another piece that came out in the nation uh, at broke yesterday called the this case for blue state secession. And it was written by Nathan Newman, who um, I believe uh, teaches at CUNY uh, in New York City. And it's the pretty classic argument, right, that, you know, the blue states in this country provide the most economic, uh, the the largest contribution to the United States economy. uh, And also there's undertones about culture and society and all that other kind of stuff, too. Right. Um, And the blue states are constantly held down by the red states, which is, first of all, it's, it's, it's a joke to say that when you remember that these major cities in this country, right, the big financial hubs, particularly New York City, how do they exist? How do they make money? They make money because wealthy corporations from all around the United States and all around the globe bring that money into something called Wall Street, right? Which is a major financial hub, which then means that people are using their extra, these people, you know, the 1%, the people at the height of this society are then using their extra money to buy real estate and to invest in the, this area, right? So like the wealth that cities like New York and Chicago, right? And LA have fundamentally are because they are hubs for the global elite and in particular the American elite, right? And this isn't even a dig against like the everyday person in Chicago or New York or Los Angeles. It's just helping people understand why are these uh, cities so wealthy? Well, it's because they act like magnets for finance, right? So acting like there's some kind of, you know, that these cultures are better, right? Or these societies are stronger. is just absurd on its face, especially when you remember uh, that, you know, if you're trying to be a good capitalist, you have to know one thing, right? If you want to make a profit, you need money to invest. And where does most of that investment come from uh, at first? It comes from extractive industries, right? And if you're talking about extractive industries in the United States, right, those are the natural resources that are abundant all across this country. But there are also things like coal, right, which has decimated uh, not just the landscape of large parts of this country, but generations of workers. Things like oil, uh, again, which is something that people have a hard time talking about the real history of it, but it's a very similar story there destroyed land and destroyed you know generations of workers to benefit and to profit a very small few and elite um so in, in this piece basically not to go on too much of a tirade before i explain what he's saying he is arguing just like the very first episode of left reckoning honestly uh where was it siskind i can't remember her first yep, name amy another siskind. one of these yeah amy siskind another one of these new york like wall street uh feminists uh was arguing uh, you know, that what needs to happen is that the blue states need to secede uh, from the union so that they can be free of the yoke of of the rest of the country. Right. And let's just start with the first and most um, apparent um, and disgusting aspect of this argument is that if you are talking about these super wealthy uh, zip codes across the country leaving the United States, what you basically are saying is that you want to excise poor people from your country. Because that is who lives in these in, in, in these in these states. Not to mention, too, 
we are talking about the most diverse states in the country. Yes, believe it or not, y'all, the South is the most diverse part of the country. So all these liberals who love to talk about how they like to, they want to stand up for people of color, they are very prepared, um, you know, for whatever reason. And we'll get into some of the ideology why we think that this exists later. Uh, for whatever reason, to excise all those people who say that they don't want to deal with this problem. Honestly, it's the same kind of mentality that you got from the 90s liberals. Right. Mm -hmm. When they cut welfare as we know it. Right. Their kind of solution to the problems that we have in the society. And there are problems we have to deal. You know, we have to deal with them. But instead of trying to deal with those politically or democratically, it's literally just like, okay, let's try to throw as many poor people under the bus as possible. Yeah, I mean, and it is such a weird ment. I mean, it's not weird. It's uh, it obfuscates basically. It's, a, it's an elitist realities. mentality, man. Right. That's what it is. Right. Um, the, the, also the, like, what do you think, like, these are port towns, you idiot. What do you, where do you think they're getting the stuff to export? Like, like, um, right. Like, I don't know. It's, it's, and then, yeah, now obviously it's financial, but like even Chicago, that, that example, like literally Chicago is Chicago because it was a gateway to the plains, to settling mm -hmm. the plains for this country. Um, I mean, Chicago hosts financial markets too. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's not something that's, you know, absent from there um, either, but here, like, here's like the really big point in, in, especially when it comes to New York, right. Is they love to cite this idea of like um, givers and takers, right. Which should alert you about something when somebody makes that kind of argument that maybe they're not actually coming from it, from the most progressive or left-wing perspective, or when they start to basically insinuate that par large parts of the country are like welfare queens, right. Yeah. Um, is they use this argument that like, oh, well, you know, when it comes to tax dollars, right. Uh, you know, these States like New York and Connecticut pay more um, than, than the red States, right. They always uh, leave out Nebraska, right. Um, which has Buffett, Warren Buffett in Nebraska, which is another state that actually um, gives more than it gets back from the federal government. I wonder why. Well, it's because they have one of the wealthiest people in the country who lives there. And that's the same reason that New York and Connecticut and all of these other, uh, all these other blue States provide so much, you know, they can make the argument that they provide more in their taxes than the, the state receives back from the federal government. Well, it's because this is where the rich people in this country live. Like, you know, because like if you take that argument to like its logical conclusion, would a fairer tax you know, situation be um, that we're not going to come after the extreme billionaire wealth? I mean, what happens to the things that liberal gets liberals get pink in the cheeks about, right? That they are going to make the wealthy pay their fair share. Somehow it's a problem when paying, uh, making the wealthy uh, pay their fair share is going to working class people in Alabama or in Tennessee, right? Mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it's, it's like, it's, it's a mean argument. It's just one that I, I just want people to understand its roots um, are, are one, they're very confused right? To make a progressive argument for it. And fundamentally, they are anti-working people and anti-people of color, right? And it's a disgusting kind of escapist uh, fantasy that eradicates and avoids the entirety of American history. You know, why does New York um, have, you know, all of this money? Well, like even the, the Southern oligarchs, right? Think about somebody like Anderson Cooper, 
right? Who comes from the Vanderbilt line, right? Why is he born in New York City? Well, because if you are a rich person, even if you're a Southerner, you take your money here, right? And that's the point that we're trying to make is not to say even that like, oh, these places are worse than any other place. It's just understand the economic reality that rich people have taken their money and they've put it in certain localities, right? And then for people today into 2021 to say like, oh, well, actually it's now time to like, you know, to punish the rest of the country uh, for not being a finance hub it's ridiculous yeah there's no reason to turn a call for like basic democratization of the elections like getting rid of the electoral college into base tribalism <laughs> yeah based on what state you're living in because and, and like this is like the bigger point um because I, I think there's two points that I want to make, right? There's one, the general point, why this is like so popular amongst liberals, right? Um, and it's because like liberalism in comparison to like socialism, democratic socialism, like democratic socialism right now has a very positive agenda. And I mean that not just in the sense that like this, like it has like good vibes. I mean that in the sense that like it has things that we want to do. Like we want Medicare for all. We want a higher minimum wage, right? Um, we want to liquidate the billionaires. We want to have higher unionization rates across the country, right? And we want to end just constant war on people. And we want to end, uh, you know, systems of like neoliberal uh, policing, which hurt the working poor across and, and just like even, you know, and the unemployed, obviously, too, and the homeless across the country, right? Like democratic socialism has like a kind of positivity to it. American liberalism as it exists today does not have an agenda. And you can see that very clearly in what in, in, in Congress right now, where you, they have the mandate, they have the ability to do a lot of things and they're sitting on their hands. What have we got a lot of symbolic politics? Because a lot of liberalism right now is all image politics. And if you're doing image politics, you really need to define yourself against the negative, right? And so for a lot of American liberals today, for them to um, you know, exist, they have to define themselves in opposition, not to anything um, substantial or anything even particularly political, right? Because at the end of the day, uh, they aren't offering something that's radically different uh, than the kind of austerity, you know, they're the austerity light party to the GOP. Right. So they're not offering some kind of radical policy differentiation between the two of them. What they are saying is like, you know, to the redneck, I'm like the New York Times reader. Right. You know, to you know, to the to the uh, you know, to the unwashed mashes. Uh, I am, you know, somebody who consumes culture and understands my place in the world. Right. They want to be able to point to problems without ever addressing them. Yeah. Should we uh, go to this clip of the uh, 59 seconds of truth bombs uh, on the yes. requirements of elected leaders in America? So this is posted by Rex Chapman, who is just a guy who's very posts a lot of stuff, uh, not always reliable information from my perspective. And sometimes, you know, it takes attributions of things that maybe other people should get the credit for. But nonetheless, uh, he posted this really awful thing uh, positively uh, and as if this is a really good way to behave from this lady mm -hmm. here. And I want to share it with everybody because it look, um, let me just say quickly that um, and bring it back to us first, that I am not a fan of Lauren Boebert. People can check out the show last week for a long segment uh, yeah, that we true. did on Lauren Boebert. I've, I've done the work anti Lauren Boebert work. This lady makes me take Lauren Boebert's side in like under 59 seconds uh, yeah. to be entirely sure. Um, so here. Are there really no 
no job requirements for Congress, no background checks, no HR, no rules you have to follow. We have an age requirement, but no work requirement, no education requirement. No one checks your references or criminal background. You lose the right to vote if you're a felon, but not the right to be a lawmaker. Does that feel right? You know what I love? The GED. It's a fabulous program. You know what I don't like? The fact that Lauren Bobert got her GED while running for Congress. That means there wasn't anything holding her back from running without a high school diploma. So professors go to college, then graduate school, and then if they want to make tenure and make any real money, they have to get a PhD. But you could actually make more money and have more power being a high school dropout congressperson? That feels some... wrong. Maybe we should reevaluate telling our kids that dropping out of high school will set back their life. They can be a liar or a criminal, a danger to their co-workers, or just straight up like... Show me a job where I can publicly threaten my boss with execution and no one fires me. Is there any scenario in which you are explicitly told not to bring a gun to work and you just go like, fuck it, and you aren't fired on the spot? We clearly need stricter standards for our government. Are there really no job requirements? Yeah, I I mean, just absolutely disgusting. Um, and I think everybody listening to that should have that reaction. Well, that kind of perspective is just despicable. It's so I w- it's it's the management impulse, right? Like it's a, I was told by AppleCare, like somebody should fire them. These are elected yes. representatives. There's no boss for these people besides the ballot. Box. The people, and 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 this is the fundamental point, right? As you know, Thomas Frank hits constantly in his work and in, in his most recent work on populism. The people know he covers just how much American liberalism, as it exists today, has developed as an ideology that is opposed to democracy. They do not like the people. That is why technocracy is the standard that they want to hold our government to instead of something like democratic rule. It gets to the fundamental politics of of the Democratic Party today, which is something we talk about all the time. It is about managing the electorate, not expanding it, right? Because if your problem, like Newman's problem um, in this piece where he's saying that the blue states should um, secede from the, uh, yeah, the blue states should secede from the country, right? If, If your problem is that you don't like the GOP and what it represents, then what you should be doing is investing in Democrat in strategies that can win those parts of the country, because the largest voting base in in those red states, right, are non-voters, right? These are people that you can bring in, but that is not uh, the kind of program that they want to push forward. That is why they were so afraid of Bernie Sanders. Right. And I'm talking about the Democratic Party at writ large, not Newman right now. Um, That is why the Democratic Party was so afraid of Bernie Sanders. Right. Because his whole program was about bringing in new people. And if you if you were bringing in non-voters in this country into the political process, what that actually ends up meaning is that working class people across this country are going to have more say in their government, which is a big fear to somebody like who you were just showing. Right. Who thinks that people who don't have enough credentials by their name aren't intelligent and should not be, be able to make decisions about the society that they live in, right? Like if your problem is that somebody like Boebert is elected, who sucks? Like we, we think she sucks too. And your solution to that is not, oh man, we need to find a way to take away her seat um, you know, through making her lose an election, but rather create rules to limit democracy. You either have brain worms or you are an elitist who has severe fear of average people in this country yeah i like the thing that also goes to marjorie taylor green who i'm just saying like if i if i could vote i would vote to like discipline her right but i it's a major problem when the main 
priority the Democrats can get behind is another management project about, you know, scolding people. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a pronounced that this is why we waffle on actually getting money out the door and actual material benefit. And it becomes this, uh, this somebody needs a scolding and we need to find somebody's manager and get somebody fired. Yeah, it's just, you know, this this technocratic fetish is it needs to go away because look at some like there are plenty of people who are monsters and ghouls who can show you all of their degrees, right? Hell, these people's arch nemesis, right? Ted Cruz is a great example of that. Does Ted Cruz's list of degrees, right, from prestigious institutions, Harvard, right? Um, has that made him any better as a as a uh, as, as somebody in government? No, Josh right? Holly. Yeah, I mean, like this whole idea that, like, oh, the problem with you know, like the problem with American politics today is that we don't have enough highly educated people in power is absolutely oh, yeah. wrong. The problem with American politics today is that we live in an oligarchy, a system of oligarchy, right, where a few people essentially run this entire country and they sprinkle themselves out. They go to school at Yale and Harvard, and then they sprinkle themselves out across the country and enact massive amounts of pain on working people. Right. That's the real problem. That's the education question that we should be talking about is the Ivy Leagues, not people who don't have enough credentials by their name. Yeah, I'm looking it up now. But um, the uh, if you. Oh, yes, here it is. So I'm going to post this. This is I was a little bit angry, but this was when the uh, WAPO came out against the um, against the two thousand dollar checks. And so I went. Oh, I went over the Washington. um uh, post editorial board to look at the education of the people on the editorial board and uh, let's just click through it a little bit um let's see here um just give me one second because i think if i can play a little bit of yeah. funny music um, well uh, let's just uh, i'm just going to share this with you first um so the first one um i, I said nixon was right about the ivy league um of course mm. uh mm-hmm. larry summers was uh key to it they look at fred hyatt education harvard College, Bachelor in History. Jackson Deal, Yale. Ruth Marcus, Yale, Harvard. Both of them. So I got both of them there. Um, let's go down. Um, uh, next one. Um, oh, yeah. And I'm excluding like Harvard and Cambridge. So uh, we're not doing any like, you know, mm. transatlantic stuff. Um, Lee Hockstad or Brown. That's also, um, oh, Harvard later. Um, Charles Lane, Harvard. Um, Stephen Stromberg, Harvard, also Oxford, um, Molly Roberts, Harvard. Um, let's go down a little bit more. Um, Amifa, uh, yeah, Yale. Um, I think that one is, that's Yale, uh, Columbia, Yale. And I think we've got another one. Um, sorry folks, it's be over soon. Um, we've got, um, <laughs> Brown university, Columbia university, mm-hmm. Princeton university, Harvard university, and yeah. yeah, so that's the that's that's the no, highly no. educated people who uh, you know know how to do things right. Yeah, like that's I mean that's the point is that like we have not lived in some deficit in the United States of people in high up places who have a bunch of you know degrees, right? What we have seen is people in high up places who have you know a lot of credentials and a class interest in continuing a war on working people and continuing. American imperialism abroad, right? Like, it's just it's just amazing to me um, to to sit here in in 2021 and to think that the problem in the United States government 
um, is, is a lack of education rather than to recognize what it really is, is that there's a lack of representation of everyday people because the mm. people who represent this government, uh, in fact, represent a very small pool of people in this country, which is an overeducated elite. Yeah, I, I think that like Harvard uh, Ivy League educated people might be surprised that they aren't preferred vastly over people without even a GED um, mm-hmm. in terms for making these decisions. Like, I mean, I know a lot of people who didn't finish high school that I say I would rather hear from than of uh, any of these ghouls that said we didn't need two thousand um, dollars during a pandemic. Yeah. No, I mean, exactly. And oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. All these people who are experts on, uh, you know, what working people need to do with their insane. And like this was that's who that's who McConnell cited as the liberal up the left opposition is Larry Mm -hmm. Summers, like even Larry Summers (laughs) and the and the Washington Post. No, like, yeah. that's I mean, talk about like, you know, the Overton window is not as big as, uh, you know, we wanted in, uh, you know, Congress, at least. Yeah, I mean, and like, and that's the thing that's it's so frustrating about even like the blue, like the blue state secession argument. Like, it would be one thing um, if those states represented like some kind of like pro working class, um, you know, movement, right? Or were functionally like right. more progressive, right? Damn. But like in New York, for like, because like in New York, for example, there is a fight right now to make sure that you can just have like basic democracy. Like, so this is supposed to be, you know, a blue state, but it's a state that is run by the real estate lobby right is run by the absolute elite and the absolute like worst ghouls in society right which are landlords um and you know and especially in this case large landlords like we're not even talking about somebody owns maybe like one property we're talking about huge conglomerates that own an incredible amount of properties um like that's essentially how the state of new york's uh, politics have been run for a very long time and that is without serious republican opposition right well yeah to such an extent where the democrats cuomo (laughs) right was working with certain democrats to basically create a faux um you know was the idc right the independent democratic literally uh, the thing where like if republicans didn't exist cuomo had to invent them they had to invent them because and that's the point is like the democratic like like so like let's just grant this person's like idea for a second that like new york uh connecticut i I can't you know california right the west coast in general um illinois right does michigan get to go um, I assume they're going to leave Virginia because they don't like, you know, New Southerners, even if they do you know, occasionally, you know, vote blue from time to time. Um, right. Like, do they think that there's actually going to be this swirl of progressive policy? The, some of the biggest characters uh, who fight against progressive policy in United States politics today are of those states. Right. Are of, you know, those ostensibly solid blue states. Right. right? We're talking about Obama. Clinton, um, you know, Hillary Clinton, I mean, uh, Joe Biden, <laughs> Kamala Harris. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's an interesting. Um, somebody was talking about Mansion, and are you familiar with Wins Above Replacement for baseball? Like, there's a replacement mm, yeah, level player. Fine. You could basically the idea is you have a player, and then you have just whatever player you could pick up um, if you needed to fill a roster spot, right? Mm-hmm. And the it, it judges like. Um, how much better you are than that random person you could replace. Now, you talk about, you apply that to Cuomo, right? Like the average 
democratic person like person that leans to the democratic party in new york is to the left of cuomo massively right yeah um so like we get give all this stuff and i think like this this was in the context of defending mansion a little bit saying like you know a guy like and i think mansion is also you could replace him with a much more leftist person but oh, like, for sure. like cuomo has absolutely zero excuse i mean like we said he makes his own excuses to stop him having mm-hmm. to do anything yeah and like and like, let's make the like the big structural point that really matters, right? Because this kind of attitude just pisses me off. The kind of like you know liberal, like coastal elitism, whatever you want to call it, right? It's it's obnoxious. But how should like socials be thinking about these these problems? It's it's to understand that we are out of power everywhere. Like we're not in power in those you know progressive states, and they're certainly not in power in red states. So the calculus needs to be. We have to run from the outside and fundamentally change all of these systems. And to sit here, like, I guess, like, beyond it just being, like, snide and and disgusting to talk about, uh, you know, undeserving people in this country to say that, like, oh, it's, dis- you know, like, to complain about the fact that billionaires in New York have to subsidize uh, food stamps um, in, in Virginia. I'm oh, sorry, in, um, you know, in um, North Carolina, right? Right. Like that's a disgusting perspective from its outset. But what also gets me really frustrated is this kind of idea that like these questions have been settled uh, in states like California, which has, I believe, you know, one of the has like the largest uh, housing inequity uh, system in the country. Right. Do you have insane uh, housing prices there that have thrown most people either into extreme housing precarity or just out into the street? Right. Like to act like those states have it figured out. And the only thing that's you know preventing us from having some kind of, you know, progressive u- utopia in this country, uh, you know, is <laughs> is North Dakota and Texas and, you know, whatever. Right. Um, is, is just absurd because the fact is, is that the institutions that are running those states are just as much an opposition force as the GOP is. Absolutely. Um, should we go into Haiti a little bit before uh, we bring Ben on? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so let's start with this uh, Telesor um, uh, report first, and then we'll get into kind of the recent history of uh, Haitian politics and why, you know, speaking of uh, Democrats um, uh, and their history of just atrocity when they get into power, um, not good for either Bill or Obama with uh, Haiti. So here's uh, Telesor um, first. In the midst of the political crisis in Haiti, President Jovenel Moïse has stressed he will not step down, urging the opposition to engage in a process of talks and to support his proposal for constitutional reform. Addressing the nation, Moïse claimed he has a, another year in office and stressed that there will not be any transition process. On Sunday, when his term constitutionally ended, the head of the state claimed an attempted coup against him had been foiled with the arrest of at least 20 people among them a judge and a police inspector. Despite this, President Moyes asked his opponents to unite to undertake effective reforms 
to the Haitian constitutional and call, constitution and called for an end to the widespread protests, calling him to step down. Judges from the 18 jurisdictions will go on strike in protest against the arrest of Judge Ibiquel Dabresil. In a statement issued by the National Association of Judges, they demanded the immediate release of Judge Dabresil. They also denounced the harassment and intimidation that members of the judiciary are suffering. Judge Dabresil was arrested on Sunday along with 20 other people, according to Prime Minister Joseph Jute. They were accused of taking part in an attempted coup d'etat. Sunday's events occurred on a significant date in which for various social organizations, federations, politicians and activists, the mandate of Jovenel Mois has ended. Haitian opposition parties appointed a top judge as interim leader as the latest attempt to oust President Jovenel Mois, whose term they said has expired. Yeah, so there's this... Uh this uh, dispute over Jovenel Moise's uh, term and whether it's expired or not, just to note the OAS um, mm-hmm. and Biden, the administration taking cues from the OAS, the OAS, like um, not even hasn't even offic- the member states haven't voted, but like, um, you know, key figures of the OAS have spoken. So the Biden is, you know, following <laughs> yeah. their lead on this um, just to give a little bit of background into and, and this uh, Moise and these leadership um, there's a, a a core council, I believe it's called, that determines who these who gets to be these presidents, and it's the UN, certain member states, and um, that sort of thing. So, it I think what the OAS says and what Biden says is going to be very vital, and I mean that there mm-hmm. sticking with Moise for you know I guess the rest of his term. We'll see if he's able to hold on. Um, you want to say anything before we get into like the Bill Clinton and Obama stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because there's a couple of things that people need to understand um, is that what we have been seeing right now is, is significant, uh, you know, labor uh, unrest, including a general strike uh, demanding Moise's resignations, um, you know, because this is somebody who is, quite frankly, clinging on to power. Right. And you are seeing right now from the Biden administration, which remember was supposed to be such a big uh, jump from the Trump administration, uh, is again playing the same role that the United States, I'm sure Matt is about to uh, make very clear to everybody of, you know, propping up uh, anti democratic figures in Haiti. Notably, it should, it has to be also understood that a big part of why you see so much um, support from the US State Department. In, in supporting Moise in this situation where it's just clear as day what is happening. When you have like the big bourgeoisie, right? Like the elites of a country rising up against the, you know, uh, you know, an anti-democratic figure like that and labor organizing general strikes against them. It's very clear what's going on, uh, which is that the forces that are keeping in power represent a interest that has a lot more power that in this case, it is United States. Um, what I'm getting at is the fact that Moise has been supporting the United States attempts uh, to implement a coup in Venezuela. These are very much co- connected. And that is why uh, we are seeing the Biden administration and the State Department ghouls willing to continue to to support him. And they're doing it half-assedly, right? They're saying, oh, he has to step down in 2022. But they are essentially, you know, agreeing with his, uh, you know, his argument to why he needs to maintain power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a little list of why uh, somebody interested in Haiti might never vote for a Democrat. So 
1995, the IMF World Bank privatized nine of Haiti's national enterprises. Then Bill Clinton administration forces them to uh, get rid of the, or drop their rice and sugar tariffs, which completely decimates agriculture, forcing people into sweatshops. Fast forward to the Obama administration, where we have a WikiLeaks cable, and I think I might have that available here. Yes, I do. Um, and we'll just read from this WikiLeaks cable because it's very, um, uh, I think, pretty uh, candid, almost like, and I guess frank um uh in how it um proposed this so um i'll read it here um uh this is uh from the embassy cable um this is okay so this is when in let me just uh, put the context a little bit more um this is when in 2009 i believe when it finally passed uh they wanted to raise the minimum wage from like 23 cents to 61 cents an hour Mm. um and uh, and then now we get to the cable and where the U.S. multinationals are concerned with that. Um, the cable writes, um, This infuriated American corporations like Haynes and Levi Strauss that pay Haitians slave wages to sew their clothes. This is the, the cable. Um, uh, they said that they would only fork over a seven cent an hour increase and they got the State Department involved. The U.S. ambassador put pressure on Haiti's president who duly carved out a $3 a day minimum wage for textile companies. The U.S. minimum wage, which itself is very low, works out to $58 a day. And then here's just a little bit more context. Haiti has about 25,000 garment workers. If you paid each of them $2 a day more, it would cost their employers $50,000 per day or about $12.5 million a year. The last year, Haynes had 3,200 Haitians making t-shirts for it, paying them each of them two bucks a day would cost it about $1.6 million a year. Haynes Brand Incorporated has $21 million on $4.3 billion in sales, has made $21 million on $4.3 billion in sales last mm. year. No surprise there, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it is just like, oh, the, oh that's, what, that's what ambassadors do. Um, it's it's great to have an ambassador. Um, well, yeah, that's what you said. <laughs> right, exactly, right. Like, um, like, oh, that, like, uh, like instead of just having it written into constitutions that hey, run this by the U.S. first, we'll just have the ambassador lean on you for corporations. It's really obscene. And I I wanted to check, and maybe I'll do this for the post game if Obama's new book mentioned Haiti and this minimum wage thing at all. Um, I'd be curious what his polished line is on it, but. Anyway, um, unless you have something uh, you want to say, oh, I, I just want to put a little bit of yeah. the demands out first. Um, so basically, the, the the types of demands are simple. Um, um, you want uh, no foreign military occupation or other type of meddling. Uh, Haiti is, at least at one point recently, um, one or two in NGOs per capita. Um, and you have just mm. massive, huge corruption problems there. Um, and, you know, even below the U.S. ambassador in Haines. Um and uh yeah we also have this ice deportation story where like hundreds of people were sent to yeah. uh to haiti against uh even though biden said no more deportations um hundreds of people sent without any kind of uh provisioning um back to haiti children and, children yeah, chil- like, yeah scores of children and um and yeah i guess we're i don't know i mean I, I ice is is an an institute, an organization at this point, and you know, progressives obviously know this that there is no defense for, right? Um, and any act, you know, any people who are acting like ICE um, was only acting one way because Donald Trump was the president, right? Needs to recognize the fact that ICE is a proto fascist organization that absolutely needs to be eradicated. Yep. 
but let's switch gears a little bit and uh, let's bring on the man, the man of many titles, uh, columnist at Jackman Magazine, author of Logic for the Left. Uh, sorry, give them an argument, Logic for the Left, host of the excellent podcast, YouTube show, uh, give them an argument. And most importantly, uh, comrade and friend, uh, Ben Burgess, man, thanks so much for joining us on your Left Reckoning debut. Hey, Ben. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thrilled to have you joining us tonight, man. Should be a, it should be a good one. So there's a couple things we wanted to get to. We have I know Matt has prepared some some good yeah. uh, sound for you. Do we want to do that first, or should we start with some of the censorship stuff? Maybe let's dive right into the censorship stuff, and then we yeah, can wrap yeah. it up towards the end. Yeah, let's have let's have our dinner first, and then we can have our dessert. How about that? <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, we've we've had versions of this conversations uh, for a while now, Ben. Let me see if I have Matt. Do you have the, his article uh, handy? Yep. Yep. Um, because this is something that I know that you know you experienced firsthand, uh, but we have been dealing with for years and years and years, uh, which is dealing with YouTube, and it's sometimes very, very um, seemingly. Uh, random imp- implementation of its community standards, um, you know, on things that are very baffling. Uh, you experienced that firsthand and sort of were able to build out a larger argument as why the left should take, uh, you know, censorship by these tech companies much more seriously. Yeah. Uh, so I've actually had a, uh, a few uh, run-ins with this lately. So um uh, one of them was actually, if you just scroll very slightly down there, uh, you can see, uh, there we go. Right. So, uh, I, I interviewed this woman, Natalie Wynn on the show and, uh, this, the thumbnail for the episode, uh, was removed, uh, by YouTube. And they said in the email that it violated their sex and nudity policy. <laughs> So, you know, check it out. <laughs> like if, if people are listening to this later in the podcast version. Um, yeah. Is it like the, the Saudis write this sex and nudity policy? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and then uh, more recently on January 6th, uh, the we did a uh, live stream uh, that had, um, you know, several people who um, – you know, Forrest Miller, uh, you know, uh, you know, see Derek Varn from, from zero books, uh, Gene Bajalan, uh, none of whom, you know, needless to say are, are, are Trumpists to, to put it mildly. Uh, and that one was removed and like the thumbnail that, that we just showed you, that was sort of yeah. actually restored, but this, this live stream still hasn't been restored by YouTube. We appealed this mm-hmm. like right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, was it was the one that we did on the six but it was randomly taken down like four or five days later and they said that uh in the email that it was because of their policy against spreading disinformation that there was significant fraud that changed the outcome of the election mm-hmm. which actually there were, there were even people who got mad at me on twitter because i, I pointed this out and i was like guys i mean this is Obviously, everybody here is very anti-Trump. Nobody was saying that. Yeah. And people were interpreting that as like, oh, so you're saying it would have been okay if you had this? Like, no, we're saying the the rationale makes no sense. It, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's bizarre on its own terms. Um, and I guess I should also add uh, that even before this, I, I remember um, when I was just doing videos for, for Zero Books, promote my first book, uh, there was something like this that happened that uh, – 
there was a, a Ben Shapiro video where he's talking about, like he's basically answering the question why, since it's according to him, uh, you know, Democrats are all horribly anti-Israel and this and that, you know, why is the most Jews vote for Democrats? And he laid out his thoughts about that. Mm-hmm. And I did what really like a pretty, like a pretty anodyne, like a pretty nerdy and pedantic video being like, well, these reasons don't make sense. You know, what about mm-hmm. this? What about that? And that was flagged by YouTube as hate speech. Um, so, and in it, in that case, like, I mean, there's a whole range here in these incidents that kind of gives you the buffet yeah. Yeah. of how YouTube well, censorship works. Then, because, like, in the okay, in the Ben Shapiro one, because the name of the video was Ben Shapiro is wrong about Israel and American Jews, and so I'm sure that the reason why they kept it flagged after the appeal was that whatever. YouTube employee had to look at 300 of these videos that morning. Yeah. Yeah. You know, probably for like sub minimum wage in a country of the global South, uh, probably like saw the word Jews. It's like, oh, okay. Probably is hate speech. You yeah. know, upheld it. The sex and nudity one, no clue. I have no idea what was going on there. And then like the one about the January 6th riot. Yeah. It's somewhere in between. We probably use some keywords that the algorithm picked up on. I don't really know. But the bigger question is, imagine how outrageous it would be if there was some government censorship office that was acting this capriciously. Uh, and it was this hard to figure out even why they made the decisions they made, you know, much less, you know, what the rationale was or anything like that. Uh, and what bothers me is that some people who normally have, you know, left wing or at least very progressive views when they start talking about stuff like this, they suddenly become libertarians that, Oh, Mm -hmm. it's a problem for freedom if the government does it, but you know, not if it's a private corporation, you know, they can do what they want. Yeah. Forgetting any sense of like commons, for instance. Um, I want to also bring up the zero books, uh, had a recent, uh, spout with this over great replacement stuff. Um, sort of adjacent, not adjacent. I I don't want to say that you have to be super careful around this COVID stuff because that is one of their um, third rails. Um, but basically saying like, this is how, you know, the powerful in society are going to take advantage of this in the sort of shock, shock doctrine sense. And actually now that I'm talking about it, I think it was resolved, but was that adequately resolved for zero books or are they, still awaiting uh, the last i heard it was uh it was a, it was at a weird in-between point so uh, apparently they'd done the video like the video had been taken down and like they put up some sort of like you know whatever whatever you call that like clone of it mm-hmm. uh and YouTube admitted that the original video was fine and lifted the restrict and then but then they gave them a strike again for the same reason for the second video, which you know gives you a sense again of how arbitrary and absurd mm-hmm. this is uh, yeah. the, you know the way that the enforcement works for it um, and you know because like I, I think literally uh, I believe they're like one strike away from you know having like much more serious consequences you know. Which is- So, and this is because of a repeat of something that is that YouTube itself has admitted was fine. Right. And, and it's like, I mean, I just want to say, because I know some people might be interested in this, like YouTube is, is very funny to work with. And, you know, Matt and I have been doing this for a long time. We've learned some things and it's constantly changing. Like 
you know, it's hard when something is like breaking news, um, especially an international event is breaking news. Like if you do anything that's like too on the nose, especially anything like Israel, Palestine, right? Like you are just going to get cut out. Um, so you learn how to do a lot of youth <laughs> euphemisms for everything. Yeah, right. So, so, <laughs> so, so, so when that Ben Shapiro video was taken down, hmm. I remember, um, you know, I texted our, our late friend Michael about it, and and he 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 told me, oh yeah, like uh, you got to be real careful. Like you know, when I did a video that was about something related, mm-hmm. it was about like a you know one state solution, you know Israel Palestine. Yeah, so yeah. I. I just, you know, we just called the video democracy in the Middle East. And, you know, yeah, I remember that conversation, actually, yeah. <laughs> which is so funny, so actually, because like, it's just like it's an empty title, right? It's like democracy in the Middle East. Who knows what this is going to be about, right? You know? <laughs> and, the, and the conversation sounds like a conversation you'd have if you were in like a dictatorship and you were talking about how some like movie script could make it past the state censorship office. Uh, you know, and you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, mm. we, we, we can't, uh, we can't directly criticize the great leader, but you know, if we do this, then people will understand that we're criticizing him and they'll, they'll allow that. And, and it's, it's insane that we have to use this uh, to, to get past uh, the censorship uh, protocols at, um, at YouTube would, because, I mean, for one thing, uh, I mean, actually, like there's been lots of in mainstream politics, there's been lots of discussion about whether, you know, YouTube and some of these other tech companies are technically monopolies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's not a fringe thing at all. But uh, but even if you think, no, they're they're not, according to Hoyle, monopolies, uh, they certainly control a massive portion of the flow of information in our society. Mm-hmm. And so to the extent that our concern about speech and censorship isn't um, – you know, isn't just purely about, you know, what the government can do and what the government can't do, but it's about a, a broader set of concerns about the free flow of ideas and information, which I would argue it always has been, right? I mean, even mm-hmm. like as as venerable liberal institution as like banned books week, you know, like this, that's that that does mm-hmm. con- concern decisions you know, or, or requests made to books and library, you know, bookstores and libraries that are under no legal obligation to carry any particular book. But, you know, we still see that as, as a concern, you know, about, about speech. And, and I think that there's, there's something uh, especially disturbing about this when, when people on the left, you know, don't always seem to, to be tracking uh, this distinction because this is like this idea that, you know, that um, freedom, you know, as long as there's some private entity that's not technically forcing you to do something and, you know, you're, you know, you're just voluntary contracting that, you know, left reckoning, you know, could leave mm-hmm. YouTube and it could just be on, you know, I don't know, like, Vimeo. like some, yeah, yeah, Vimeo or whatever, like this, once you kind of follow that breadcrumb of thought, like, that's again that's libertarianism the whole mm. point of being a socialist is that you think that you can have arrangements that are technically you know freely legally free contracts that are still incredibly oppressive 
Yeah. And I just like, I'd like to sort of broaden it out a little bit because like the YouTube stuff is, is definitely interesting, but I also think it's particularly interesting to us. Um, sure. <laughs> Cause we're all, yeah. we're, we're, you know, we're all tenant farmers. Of the YouTube. <laughs> um, but like, one of the the larger aspects of this and, and what I really like about your piece and just, you know, in general, your arguments on this is trying to make people understand um, that like, yeah. So like YouTube has this, this massive power. This has been a problem with YouTube for a very long time. Right. And it's a problem with a lot of these other platforms is that, you know, they basically are able to write their own rules and they're not really, you know, accountable to even their users. Right. And that's a problem. Uh, but I think you could say that like, yes, you know, it's a problem of censorship, but it's also a platform problem. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I think what's really important for us to uh, to sort of zoom in out is to understand that these kind of stories would probably get a lot more play with people if there really hadn't been this growing acceptance from a lot of people across the country and also in large portions of the left to accept like political censorship from tech companies as a good thing, actually, not just as something that occurs, but as something that's positive, like the kind of celebration when you see people's accounts uh, getting deactivated by like Twitter um, and Facebook. Um, and, and how would you sort of frame that, that position or argument about why that might not be a particularly good thing to celebrate, to have YouTube, yeah, yeah. Uh, Facebook and, and Twitter being able to decide uh, good speech versus bad speech. And let me just throw on the table um, oh. just um, to kind of uh, implicate myself here. I, I think you guys sent off a tweet that you could argue was celebrating project Veritas um, getting booted off Twitter um, tonight. Yeah. Um, now, Ben, you get to let me know how you would uh, approach that. Uh, so look, I mean, I think there's, I think there's celebrated like, like, like you take some, you know, some Schadenfreude in it, and this, and this, and this celebrating. It's funny. Like, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let me just say, like, my position is always, I never want to make any of this stuff a priority for the left. <laughs> like, it's more that if, if it happens, it happens. So mm. I just want to. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think lots way. of things are funny that I don't actually support. If you know, if if we're gonna have a discussion about what I think the rules should be, you know, like mm. like I would, I, I would definitely, um, I would definitely make a distinction there, right? You know, be, between just sort of. Uh, you know, being amused that something's happening or taking some sort of satisfaction in something happening uh, and, um, and thinking, oh yeah, this is good. This is, this is, this is on reflection, what should happen. Uh, And I, and I think that actually gets back to what David is asking, because I I think that that is, I think failure to track that uh, distinction Mm -hmm. is actually the source of a lot of the problem here that, uh, very often, I think people end up, you know, when they're talking about, you know, this YouTube or Twitter uh, deplatforming or uh, or doxing, you know, like, like like people, you know, people being fired, you know, for uh, because of what they've tweeted. I think very often people, especially, you know, like including, you know, not especially, but including people on our side, uh, react to that primarily through this prism of are the people that we hate going to get punished, mm-hmm. you know, and, and yeah. that's what we're really focused on. Are we going to punish the bad people? Uh, and, and I, I guess I would just, I would just go back to, um, you know, something that uh, Adolf Reed, I remember, you know, saying in, in one of his TMBS interviews, which is that this is just too Protestant a way of looking at politics. It's mm. like all about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, and there, we should have other priorities, you know? It shouldn't mm-hmm. be right. about that. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I... Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I was also going to say, like, the YouTube new platforms we've been talking about, or, like, you know, you guys might have touched on this earlier in the episode, you know, uh, but um, I don't know. But, uh, you know, but when when you see it's like, oh, this person got fired for their, 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 their tweets, great, right? You know, that's, that's the, you know, they're being punished. They're bad people. They're being punished. It's worth thinking about things like just today or yesterday, it came out that, um, mm-hmm. uh, that Nathan Robinson, you know, was fired from his job as a, uh, as a guardian columnist for tweeting a very mild joke about uh, U.S. military support uh, for the state of Israel. And, mm-hmm. and I think that, so, so one thing is just like, okay, let's think hard about the rules and who's enforcing them because uh, these people aren't our friends. You know, they're, they're not, you know, like none of the people making decisions at YouTube or Twitter or any major institution mm-hmm. uh, have the left's best interests at heart. Uh, but then the other thing is just going back to the Adolf Fried point. Should this be what we're really focused on, the bad people being fired? Because this this kind of seems to me like this is this is the difference between um, between leftism and, and conservatism, really, right? You know, like, like do you think like do you think about politics primarily through the prism of thinking about like individual moral character? You know, this person is bad, and you know, so like it's it's that's that's what we should focus on. Or do you think of politics primarily in terms of institutions and what their mm-hmm. what their arrangements of power should be? And it seems to me that if you think if you're thinking of it in the second way, then you should be very eager to disempower. Um, you know, corporate censors to, mm. to, to make it hard to fire people, to make it hard to deplatform people, mm-hmm. uh, both because that's just the kind of society that we'll want to create. And that's and, and because uh, it's also what's in our interests, uh, you know, right right now, you know, to uh, like just pragmatically, you know, in the in the near future. And, and, I, and the last little thing I'd say to put a bow on this is mm-hmm. I know that some people, you know, when they watch things like this, they listen to things like this they're always kind of prepared with the examples like, okay, but what about this thing? Are you saying mm-hmm. that this, this shouldn't have happened that, you know, that this person shouldn't have been kicked off for this thing, or they shouldn't have, you know, been demonetized. They shouldn't have been fired for that thing, you know, cause I, I think they should. It's like, no, you don't have to be an absolutist about this. Right. You don't yeah. think, yeah. Like you don't have to think that the ideal like terms of service for YouTube or Twitter should be, you can literally say anything at any time. Uh, uh, that's one thing that, you know, we talked um, with, uh, with Edward Angueso yet last week about, you know, Section 230 and this big structural changes we can do. And I think we all are in agreement that antitrust and those sorts of standards are what's needed here. But one thing that always seems to me like a common sense uh, thing you could force on these companies is to be transparent about about these d- judgments they're making, um, right? Like this vague gesturing towards terms of service that everyone can see is just bullshit and then them covering their ass as opposed to say, and, and obviously they don't do this because this would require like hiring people like a team of ombuds om, persons um, to adjudicate these things. Um, but I, I have heard fa- Facebook has been talking about doing like an in-house private version of that. Um, mm-hmm. And ultimately like that needs to be forced and under like statutory public control. Um, but like those things, like, I, I mean, I think of all sorts of right wingers who I think occasionally have 
strong arguments that they didn't break the terms of service, at least in the sense that other people are. Yeah, right. Right? But I want to hear, like, if it is because, oh, this person just has a history uh, document, like James O'Keefe, right? He's literally, like, paid money because he's a fraudster. Like, he paid money yeah. to Acorn, right? Like, then I... then put that in writing because I want to see you have to put that in writing for the leftists too, because I think, I mean, I look, maybe this is naive of me, but like, I go on, David. Oh no. I mean, if you were going somewhere, I, I, was I, just, I, mean, I just want to see that. I just want to see those things spelled out because I think when you allow it to go in the dark, it allows people to fester on it. And I think it's easier to all of a sudden snap up all these left-wing ones without having to like put anything down in writing. That no, would, no, maybe exactly. Upset your workforce. I, I, so, I, I, I mean, I, I think that's just, just short and sweet. I mean, like, like if, if, cause if it's unclear at this point, you know, it's like what we're advocating, it's mm-hmm. just that uh, there be ex- like, it's not that there's no terms of service. It's not that you can't get kicked off if you threaten somebody or you like scream racist insults at them or, you know, whatever uh, it's, it's that we want there to be really specific really explicit guidelines and that I think that those guidelines should generally, you know, given gray areas err on the side of allowing more free speech than not. That's it. And what I was going to say is like, look, there are people who spend a lot more time thinking about like the particularities of this than I do. Um, But what my general feeling on this is, um, is rather than coming up with, you know, here are the different circumstances and here's like the good way to, you know, come down on a user and here's the bad way to come down on the user is to understand what kind of developments are happening um, with how unilaterally these these companies feel that they can act right and that is like a kind of more of a power analysis right because like if you do see like an extremely active role for these companies like coming after i mean you know sorry like the president right like that is an extremely active role from these kind of companies and to ask yourself um what are the dynamics at play behind this um because what uh, the stuff with trump and and twitter is a hundred percent new administration and a flip in the power dynamic and the power analysis from the Twitter corporation, right? Which means that these corporations, just as they did with Trump, when he was lying about the coronavirus and all these other things are going to cozy themselves up or act in the way that protects them and their interests in the best way. Right. So it's like, I think at a certain point, like if we spend too much time, like even, you know, going into the philosophical question of like free speech, absolutism or anything like that, we actually distract ourselves from what the actual play is because these actors, like the, the corporations themselves aren't sitting they're you know with a group of philosophers and saying like what's the way to like you know have a vibrant version of free speech in our Wait, society no. sorry david i saw a thread from jack dorsey and he basically said it's yeah, bitcoin sure. so uh. you know they're 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 trying to figure out how they can protect the future of their company yeah and, no and right like, like line, right and it is really like look I mean, even if you think for the sake of argument that that's justified in in, in that case like there's there's still something really disturbing about the way that people trivialize it. It's like, oh whatever, he's still got plenty of other platforms, not yeah. a big deal. It's like, look, imagine that, you know, we're in, I don't know, you know, twenty forty, whatever, and um, you know, president uh just make her Rashida Tlaib, that's my favorite. <laughs> uh is uh uh like there's there's a general strike going on and president uh, president Tlaib uh uh, you know, is was was accused of incitement for giving like a really rabble rousing speech, you know, uh, to uh, to the strikers, 
And uh, so there's this long list of social media platforms that have cut her off. Mm-hmm. Would we think that was a big deal? I think we would think it was a big deal because you're talking about the president of the United States losing a bunch of channels of communication to the general public. And I think that, I think that is a significant, you know, uh, speech issue. It's certainly a crazy power play by, yeah. by, by those, by those companies. And I think whatever you think about the outcome in any given case, whether you think it's the right decision or not, I think what we should be disturbed by, you know, the point that we should be making is one, as, as socialists, I think we should be saying, look, this is not a way having a few tech CEOs be empowered to make yeah. these decisions is not a way for a reasonable society to run its digital commons. You know, we, we should, we should bring them under some form of public ownership uh, and, and then have, um, and then have really explicit, specific, narrow uh, mm. guidelines that are available for everybody to look at that tell you this is exactly what'll get you kicked off. This won't, uh, and and because because that's how you know. Do we want to live in a society where it's this easy for Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg to uh, to silence people? I certainly don't. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah. I mean, so one kind of wrinkle to that that I uh, like monitored a little bit is the Zuckerberg talking to his employees uh, who wanted to do more uh, that their platform was a giant right wing propaganda um, or like operation, basically. And basically, uh, Zuckerberg and I forget the guy's name, um, the guy who was with um, Kavanaugh, um, but basically overruled the workers right but in a way that i think um kept more i guess uh openness for particularly the political right at least um on the platform how do we because i mean there was also the google union thing and like i think certain people scoff at that um uh with i mean some degree you can see why like tech workers aren't exactly what you think stereotypically at the same time worker control over these platforms is better than executive control right so what do we think about that because i think like I, I definitely don't want to trust that. And I definitely, like, even if uh, Facebook all of a sudden was a worker-controlled co-op, um, you know, we'd still, yeah, want, to still want to disassemble that. to be able to unilaterally control these things. Exactly, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I just wanted... Yeah. I, what do you think about that? Because I think of, like, if these were... I don't know. It's it's hard for me, like, to formulate this. But I, I, I feel like I trust Facebook's employees more than I trust Facebook's executives. For um, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I trust Facebook's employees more than I trust Facebook ex- Facebook's executives, but I I do. But I mean, I also think that you know, taking these this is there's a kind of dynamic that's this played out in a bunch of these places where um, if like you know workers or or some group of workers you know at, at one of these tech companies uh, you know maybe wants to you know wants to censor someone then uh, and then the company does it. You know, say, oh, well, see, it was the workers who want to do it. It's like, yeah, but they weren't the ones decided to do this. Why is this the one time they get to that decide. they're going to listen to the workers? They're not going to listen to them about, like, pay or, you know, discipline mm-hmm. right. or any of these <laughs> things. It's, it's, it's just this, you know. It's like, well, no, it's because it's kind of what you wanted to, you know, wanted to do anyway. I mean, I, I, I guess on the broader question, I just say um, that, I mean, there's no guarantee – you know, we don't want the 
like it's not like the reason we want economic democracy is that we think that workers or communities are always going to make the right choices. They're not, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's it's uh, you know it's that the same way that it could be true that sometimes and sometimes in places you could have hereditary monarchs who make more tolerant decisions, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Than, than parliaments. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we we like monarchy. You know, it, it it could be that yeah, sure, maybe sometimes the CEO you know makes a more benevolent or tolerant decision, but. Uh, we want to step back and say, okay, so in this case, it worked out, but do we generally want a few CEOs making these decisions? Mm. And, and I still think no. And I still think, and I also agree with Matt's last point that, uh, that there are lots of things that we don't want it to be in the hands of private corporations, even if they were like, obviously it would be amazing if YouTube or Facebook were any of these places, you know, we became, you know, worker cooperatives, Mm -hmm. but there are things that we don't want in the control of even worker cooperative private corporations, the same way we wouldn't want like worker cooperative private health insurance. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. And and I think there's a conversation we can have later, but like a good example of that would be is if you have a worker cooperative, you know, factory, whatever it it produces, it might be in their interest to dump the sludge or whatever the byproduct is, you know, down the river. um, And might, that might not be in the interest of the community down the street. Right. That's why, you know, we can't just um, divide everything up into smaller, smaller bits and and hope for better solutions. Um, But before. No, no, totally. I I, want to yeah. You have one final th- I just want to take on real quick, like, um, oh, crap, damn. I just thought you say what you're going to say, David. And I'll remember what I was just going to. Oh, I was just going to move on to the, the other. Clip, yeah, well, so. no, but I mean, I, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, there are conflicted interests. You don't have like, uh, I mean, you, you would still I mean, if, if we had a economy with with, a, you know, we're like the the entire private sector of the economy, you mm-hmm. know, was was worker co-ops. I mean, that would be like unimaginably amazing, you know, as as far as like the achievement of our, our political goals, of course. Uh, But even in that economy, I would still want like aggressive environmental regulation. I would still want like things that were really important public goods to be directly provisioned, you know, by the States. We took them out of the markets because even, even worker controlled firms do still respond to a lot of the bad incentives that, um, that, that regular capitalist companies do. Yeah, and yeah. even imagining a worker co-op YouTube or Facebook trying to get off the ground, it would be and and having a, a worker co-op background instead of like a Silicon Valley background, it would have been strangling its crib for like copyright immediately, right? All of these all these uh, platforms, including YouTube, has massively massively profited, and I know this because I used to play copyright music on Majority Report all the time for like years mm. before they started cracking down on it, right? Like like these oh, companies man, that's, were that's printing the money. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I know I I was I was just, I just had a real pang of jealousy, you know, because uh, uh, David does this weekly segment on on my show where we talk about uh, country music, and it would be amazing if, <laughs> if we, we could just play listen to it. Music on there. <laughs> Literally, I used to. It was the, one of the best parts of working at Majority Report is I got to play like a song every day that could be thematically linked. Like Panama Papers came out, I played Panama by Van Halen, and <laughs> that was so allowed, awesome, and that was money in YouTube's pocket every time. Like that was value add for YouTube. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, mm-hmm. none of these platforms would have been allowed to get as big as they were if they were actually uh, had a radical like ownership model. Um, it's only because they were making money for Silicon Valley that they were allowed to become these giant propaganda monstrosities yeah. that they are. No. Well, yeah, exactly. I know. I think that's such a good point. And it's such a throwback to the, the golden age. We used to play um, like uh, on TMVS, the um, 
Uh, oh, uh, I'm blanking on um, that uh, Harlem rap. Um, neither of you guys tell me on that. Um, oh, man. Somebody in the chat will uh, listen. Oh, sorry, man. <laughs> um, but we have some we have some clips for that you've put together, right, Matt? For Ben. Oh yeah. Well, we have uh, my. I want you to logic my. Um, we need some logic, man. Because we've been we've been getting worked up. Matt and I are trying to like. We're dealing with all these questions that you know. There's no clear answers to, mm. and sometimes it's nice to just sort of body slam someone with our with our big ass brains. Yeah. Uh, so, so we need just, we need Ben we need Ben to show up for us today. This is Kevin Kramer. Um, <laughs> he's a senator of North Dakota. He's, um, I mean, Hoven's not particularly smart, but Kramer, it's like on the surface, you can just tell he's a dumb guy. Um, and we'll play a little bit of him here. Um, and uh, this is just on student loans. And I mean, David, we might need some of your econ skills here too, a little bit. Um, we'll need logic and econ uh, attack here. And I'll share this screen for you guys. According to the Federal Reserve, student loan borrowers have an average of $37,000 in debt. Now, Democrats are urging President Joe Biden to forgive student loan debt for millions of Americans. And I'm going to skip the And I also want to note that Kramer posted this himself. Um, so this wasn't like somebody saying, look at this dummy um, against student loan relief. The burden from the borrowers to the taxpayers. Well, offering to unilaterally forgive debt students chose to take on would create a perverse incentive and certainly encourage others to needlessly rack up more loans while doing nothing to address the real inadequacies in our higher education system. President Biden previously said he supports erasing up to $10,000 in debt. Yeah, well, well, I'd want to leave off before Biden because that also pisses me off. I'm but, sorry, I'm just I'm becoming a body language expert, but like that 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 movement that he did just did not inspire confidence in his his, his awareness of his surroundings. <laughs> I mean, it it honestly like he's so unimpressive that this is this is how weak the Democratic Party is in North Dakota. That when he was running for Senate. I, I can't find this right off the top of my uh, the bat, but they had some old decrepit Democrat um, from like that was like seven years old, and he's like, "They're like, why are you running?" It's like the party asked me to run. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why Kramer's a senator in North Dakota now. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess what are your guys' response to that? I have a few things that uh, um, I'll get into later, but anything you want, anything struck off or uh, uh, strike out, for, uh, hit you off. The- I can't talk right now, but anyway, what stuck <laughs> yeah, out to you? That's what I was looking I mean, for. <laughs> well, I, I mean, look, I, I will first of all just plug that that I I had a uh, article in Jacobin in um, December, I want to say, called "It's Not That Complicated: Canceling Student Loan Debt Is Good," yeah. um, which you know, so you you have an idea. Uh, but uh, where, where I talk a little bit about this this. Uh, perverse uh, perverse incentives argument uh which you know is is really uh remarkable like i think one thing i mean for i mean first of all if you're worried about this oh that you're gonna you know that people are gonna you know take out student debt because they'll think that they'll get a you know student debt jubilee someday in the future uh that Okay, one, if you're really worried about this, I have a really easy solution for you, uh, which is to uh, to just abolish college tuition going forward. So, 
uh, no, you know, there's no perverse incentive anymore. You know, no, nobody's taking out any student loan debt because it doesn't exist, which, by the way, I think is the best argument for forgiving it all, that it just shouldn't exist in the first place. Right. Um, but, uh, but also, I think that uh, this argument pairs really oddly with another very common argument against forgiving student loan debt, uh, which is that, oh, this is regressive because uh, people who mm-hmm. come from uh, higher income backgrounds are more likely to go to college. So uh, so actually, this is more, you know, like like you're basically you're doing a favor for for rich kids. That's like the you know, right. that's that's the the flavor of the argument. And a lot of that's extremely misleading anyway, because, yeah, people who go to college are more likely to come from relatively higher income backgrounds but within the group of people who go to college people who come from lower income backgrounds are more likely to have be saddled with massive amounts of student loan debt for obvious reasons because their mm. their parents can't just cut a check uh, you know so for example there's there's a huge uh racial gap in student loan debt uh that you know that uh you know, black graduates are are vastly more likely than white graduates to have, you know, a huge pile of student loan debt uh, or not even graduates. That's that's also, you know, I mean, with this falls the hardest on people who go for long enough to accumulate some debt, but, you know, but don't end up graduating. Right. And uh, in a way, like, it's really weird when you put these arguments together because say, well, okay, hold on. But when you're talking about this perverse incentive, perverse incentive for who, right? Yeah. Like, 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 like what you're saying is that what you mean when you say perverse incentive is that uh, people who can't really afford it will go to college uh, because they'll think that it'll be forgiven someday, uh, to which all I really have to say at a moral level is, yeah, good, and I hope I hope so on both counts, right? You know, that, you, like, that, you know, that everybody, everybody wants to call college, be able to go to college. And yes, it damn well should be forgiven. And, and you, and it's, and say, and it's really like, there's something really despicable about saying on the one hand uh, that, Oh, uh, this is regressive because going to college is a higher, you know, tilts higher income. Uh, so, which is true because lots of poor kids never, try to go to college because because they they know you know that they mm. that the financial aid bureaucracy is a nightmare they just don't want to try to deal with it uh but that's because we're charging people to go to college and making them go into debt to go to college if if you want that to change if you don't want this to be primarily something that people who come from higher income backgrounds do then you shouldn't be saddling people with student loan debt indentured servitude yeah, I certainly wasn't thinking of debt forgiveness any time that I signed on for my student loans. Um, like, I, I, I mean, and it's so predatory that like 18 and 21 year olds are put in that position, right? Like, cause I had not a terrible amount of student loan debt from my undergrad, uh, more from my, uh, summer abroad. Um, but I, then I got accepted to NYU and that's a prestigious university. I couldn't have gone if it wasn't for massively like um Mm. you know taking out loans and i did it because like and look i saw some indication that maybe it was a huge risk at the same time you get that like acceptance letter and like neither my parents went to college and that looks like that's you've done it right like that's a success so you're going to do it and you're told that of course you're you're going to be in new york you're going to be paying you're going to be making 125k you'll be paying that off easy anyway and Mm -hmm. like it's 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 obviously about controlling 
people who want to get an education that that hurdle is put in their way. And I mean, that's, I mean, that's exactly it is that it's, it's so disgusting to see, you know, people who make all these arguments against trying to have any alleviation for the student debt crisis. And then obviously uh, for alleviating it permanently by making universities across the country uh, free. It's disgusting that people make that argument and then lean so heavily into the solution to poverty is education, yeah. right? Yeah. Like they tell those two yes, the exactly. same lies together. It's just like this. It, it, honestly, it's the same kind of logic as all of these liberals, right, centrists and Republicans, who when it comes time to giving everybody $2,000 checks, starts to become very worried about income inequality and wants to make sure that people making $80,000 a year or whatever don't get the $2,000 checks. Here's the solution that you can say to every one of those arguments when people start worrying about these regressive policies too much. You say, oh, yeah, if, there's, if we are worried that these are going to go to people at a certain income bracket that we don't want to go to, raise the taxes on that income bracket, and then you recoup your losses and make sure that all these people don't fall through the cracks. Like it is, it is an argument that has, is so – like you know, it's proliferated so much of U.S. political discourse at this point. Um, that it is actually amazing that we just like don't have that as our default position. Like just press a button, like record yourself saying that once and you can put that in place of an argument for almost all of these, uh, you know, positions that they, yes. these arguments that they make against universal programs that will help people. Yeah, race taxes. The second, the second quick, quick point I want to make too is like all of this like hand wringing about the worry about the, uh, what was the phrase that he used? The, um, uh, the, the slippery slope about the moral imperative that like, you know, if we make it, if we make it easy for people who have debts, that they're just going to get themselves more and more indebted in the future. We have a huge crisis of that already in this country. That's not even limited to student loan debt because money is so cheap for people because interest rates have been so low for a really long time. And because average wages of working people in this country have been so stagnant for a very long time, there has been a very perverse incentive, right? which is very different from people trying to borrow money to get educated or to buy a basic, uh, you know, goods. And, you know, ba- honestly, at a certain point, just basic comforts like a refrigerator, maybe a television so you can watch some TV after working at an Amazon facility you know, 40 hours a week and not being able to get any break time for yourself, right? Um, a really perverse incentive for all of these corporations who are now stepping in to provide people with these small time loans. I'm talking about things like Afterpay and Affirm, right? Like if these people are really worried about creating a dynamic where people are going to get more and more indebted, um, they should be targeting these you know, companies that are you know, being predators in a situation um, that is caused by low wages and desperation for most people in this country. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean absolutely, uh, and and also sometimes people say, well, why you know why student loans? What about you know what about this kind of debt or that kind of debt? And uh, and I think that the answer is pretty much always you know yeah that too that too right like that's like you know like yes in general uh, people are saddled with with all kinds of uh, of of extremely unreasonable debt and uh, and we should we should have. You know, we should have a lot of different kinds uh, of uh, of debt forgiveness, but the the real, you know, I mean, the question is like, you know, and and I think that there are look, I think there's a discussion to be had about the fact that you know that maybe you know on the left we we spend a lot of time talking about uh, you know free college and student loans because you know because because so many of us are people who you know 
who, who experienced those particular things, you know, and, 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 and as, uh, in fact, as I remember Matt saying once in the past, you know, if, uh, you know, maybe as, as the cohort ages, you know, we'll be a little more, you know, more focused on, on other things about, you know, childcare and, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and I hope so. Yeah. You know, uh, but, um, but the point is that this, this should be part of a general constellation of, uh, of, of, of redistributive, you know, measures and, you know, measures to make people's lives easier, you know, which would be about all of those, uh, all of those things, you know, that like this, there's a line that, that I've always loved from, uh, a friend uh uh amber lee frost you know who uh who says you know that like the best thing about you know going from being a liberal to being a socialist is you can stop morally means testing people in your head you know you can just say every bastard deserves better yeah i uh, yeah i think that's great um i just want to add one one last point to this too about like the debts that we should be you know we should be forgiven across the board is that um when you saw what happened with stimulus checks the first round of stimulus checks that $1200 check uh, for the checks that actually ended up in people's bank accounts which was a huge problem you know we don't need to go into all of that um just how much of a disaster it is in this country for them to provide any kind of direct payments to people um but for the people who did get that money I think something I, I, I don't want to fudge the numbers, but I think it was like 35, 40% um, of, of that money went to paying debts. Yeah. Went to paying credit card debt, went to paying, you know, mortgage debt or student loan debt or whatever, right? Because people understood, okay, I have a little bit of a windfall. Um, so, so the people who basically weren't using that to just like literally buy food were using that to get the debt collectors off of their back, which basically created a, another perverse incentive, by the way. Um, for I mean, actually, like debt co- debt collecting companies had their best quarter ever last summer, right? Um, and 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 an inadvertent part of those direct payments. Again, I'm not advocating against direct payments. I'm saying that you know what you know progressives would be doing and what a socialist certainly would be doing um, in any kind of moment like this. We need to stimulate uh, the economy. Would be not only giving people money in their pocket, but also dealing with those debts because we don't want to create a cycle um, where the government's giving people money, but basically because of this perverse system that we live in, people are just handing those checks over to the bankers um, and the debt holders who are very well off in this situation. Yeah. I mean, even, even in terms of economic stimulus, like you, you want, um, I mean, you want ordinary people to, to be able to, to spend the money immediately. And, and this mm-hmm. isn't, I mean, this, this isn't even just specifically about the direct payment issue right now uh, in general. I mean, you know, eliminating all student debt or eliminating all kinds of other debts, you know, would, uh, would free up the, you know, the money to just be immediately spent, uh, in in ways that are, I mean, look, the people who, uh, I mean, if you actually, you know, if you actually want to stimulate the economy, you know, the the people who are most likely to immediately, you know, put any money that you give them in circulation are the people who have the least to begin with. Exactly. Uh, whereas if it's going to the the you know either the uh, the you know grantors the loan or or just whatever company happens to own the debt at this point you know then then they it's it's much more likely to be tucked away in a bank account mm-hmm. well and where it does look like an imposed austerity on people is that like even a uh, home building trade organizations are saying like the number one thing you could do to like you know uh kick up housing starts would be to relieve student loan debt and still not mm-hmm. doing it i mean i i think it's I think uh, Biden would listen to oh, for uh, sure. those those lobby organizations on some other policy uh, promotions. It's interesting that this one isn't. Um, yeah, no, I think that's so. Well, I think um, 
you know, I think we could do this this all night, and we have. I, I would love to, but we have all these things we have to get to with Ecuador. Yeah. Uh, to after this, Ben, I really appreciate you joining us. I'm sure this won't be the last time, and uh, looking forward to talking to you uh, next Monday. Yeah. Uh, give absolutely. them an argument, which you all should all be checking out if you haven't already, and always be uh, looking out for Ben's pieces in uh, Jacobin Magazine too, which are always fun to read. All right. Thanks, David. Thanks. Take care, bro. See you. All right. Yeah, I know. I mean, I love hanging out with Ben, but the thing is, like, I get that like a happy hour vibe. <laughs> we yes. choose Zoom drinks with Ben too. I know. And I'm, like, I'm like, oh shit! Myself. Actually, I forgot we're doing a show. <laughs> um, all right. I, I really so I, I want to get to this Ecuador story. This is really important, and um, there's going to be a lot unfolding over this week um, and the next uh, couple weeks, and then. In going into the final elections that we're going to, you know, be getting to on this show. But I basically want to set the framework uh, today. Uh, but to, I mean, we have this really funny story that I, I want to get to early on, but let me just sort of set the stage a little bit uh, for folks who might not be familiar with Ecuador um, and, and what's sort of at stake right now. Um, so there are elections um, that occurred very recently in, in Ecuador uh, in their first round of their presidential election. It's a runoff system. So the first and second place uh, vote getters are going to go um, into a final election, which will be held in April, right? Unless in the first round, uh, one candidate receives, I believe, over 50% of the vote. Um, so uh, Andres Oroz, uh, uh, who is um, a left-wing economist uh, who is a former member of the Korea government um, is by far the front runner. Uh, he won this first round of election by a significant margin, um, but not enough to avoid a runoff. Uh, so what's happening right now uh, is there is still, as of recording today on Thursday, a pretty tight margin uh, between two other candidates. And we'll get into the, those dynamics uh, in a second. But I just wanted to, people to understand uh, the, the context of the pink tide and the Correa government in Ecuador uh, before we get into this story, which is very funny. Uh, another very classic kind of like, psyop. We don't know who was behind it, uh, but we wanted to get to that early. Um, but just to, so people understand who Correa is and what the, you know, the pink tide meant for Ecuador. I mean, for a long time, uh, for people who are sort of new to this kind of thinking, to being socialists, people who weren't around basically when this was going on, the pink tide uh, was an alliance or was a phenomenon of left-wing, uh, you know, socialist, social democratic governments across Latin America. Lula da Silva, right? It was, you know, example of that. Evo Morales um, and Correa, right? Along with Hugo Chavez um, as well as Maduro, right? This was an incredible moment in, in Latin America where you saw this coalition of left-wing uh, governments uh, coming into power and basically pushing back against the Washington consensus, the IMF consensus, and doing a lot of good uh, for their people. Um, and, you know, just, you know, so Rafael Correa uh, was one of the major leaders of the Pink Tide. He was the leader of Ecuador. He doubled the minimum wage, cut poverty in half, 
and invested heavily in healthcare. Um, he, like Lula and like Morales, uh, faced you know what we're calling now a lawfare very recently. Um, so this is somebody who is definitely not a friend of the U.S. State Department. He's definitely not a friend of the Latin America right wing, um, and uh, he's somebody who is constantly maligned uh, because of that. So um, Rose is running in this uh, in this in this election coming in, you know, in first, in this first round uh, and is too, uh, you know, being attacked and slammed with all these ridiculous accusations. Uh, but there's this really funny story, Matt, do we have this about the discovery um, basically trying to uh, tie um, Andreas Orozen to a, uh, you know, to kind of like super far left militant organizations in Colombia, Right. Uh, do you have this up? I do, yep. If you can read, I can't see it. Okay, yeah, I'll put it up here one second. Um, so, yeah, the shrill Tina Moo bird becomes inadvertent whistleblower on fake propaganda video shared during Ecuador elections. And we'll go a little bit here um, uh, to this clip here. And para nuestros camaradas revolucionarios de la hermana de la República del Ecuador. So Mantenemos nuestra palabra de apoyar la lucha revolucionaria de los procesos progresistas en América Latina, por lo que continuará nuestro compromiso de asistir a la campaña política en Ecuador. Now it says um, it's in Colombia. Now you won't if you don't speak Spanish, you won't understand that. But what you will understand is the bird song behind uh, it. And that was all that was needed uh, for some ornithologists to determine that the uh, the video was not, in fact, filmed in the Colombian jungle, but probably in uh, Ecuador somewhere um, where this mm-hmm. bird is known to inhabit. Uh, so, I mean, shout out to the uh, the um, the uh, the shrill Tinamu bird uh for its uh, solidarity you know whistleblowing um its habitat is under threat from climate change of course um so i don't know it, hopefully we can do it a solid and reverse that a little bit um, <laughs> yeah after they helped out <laughs> yeah and, and and we bring this up because you know the one it's a very funny example but this is is just something that you're going to be seeing a, a lot of right which is whenever you start to see attention uh, in U.S. media, you know, start getting pointed in the limited way that it does, uh, you know, to countries like Ecuador or, or Bolivia, you start to get a lot of wild stories. And it's just a good reminder to folks that there is just an incredible amount of, of misinformation and propaganda uh, emanating uh, from, you know, out of this election. Um, so let me just, hmm, I'm trying to think if I should... Let me let me set the stage a little bit to everybody about uh, what um, about what this election means. Uh, so I talked a bit about Korea and and what that had meant for working people in Ecuador. And again, look, these aren't perfect systems. Um, you know, Korea is not like you know some kind of perfect prophet or anything like that. But very much represented a break with the IMF. Very much represented a break with U.S. imperialism. Very much represented pan Latin American solidarity uh, that was fighting for the working class in a, a group of people who have had, um, you know, a boot around their neck for hundreds of years. You cannot uh, talk about Latin America without understanding that that, that South America in particular, uh, obviously, though not to exclude Central America, has been, has, has been defined uh, 
by extraction by imperialist powers since Europeans appeared, right? You need to understand that if you're going to understand why it's so important uh, that we see these justice movements today. Um, so, so Correa comes in, into power, and then after he leaves, um, he's su- succeeded by Len Moreno, uh, who was in his government and was supposed to be one of his understudies. So we should just say the name is Lenin Moreno. Do you want to comment on? Yeah, and, and that is not an accident. He was named after the revolutionary uh, communist Vladimir Lenin, which is just a, a, a tragic uh, joke if you realize once you understand who this person is and what he ended up representing. But this was somebody um, you know, who was supposed to represent you know, a continuity of this government, not a break. That's how he came into power. People were like, okay, this will be a continuation of of these programs but almost immediately uh, he became a lapdog for the united states and the imf heavily indebted the country uh, to the imf uh, took horrible loans that of course came with all the typical imf stipulations of increased austerity uh, and privatization and attack on workers rights um, most notably, I think for, for Americans, um, or I guess anybody, but, uh, you know, that people might be familiar with is that Len Moreno evicted Julian Assange, uh, from the Ecuadorian embassy in the United Kingdom, essentially condemning Assange to state terror on, you know, by the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, also it should be noted that Moreno also turned his back on, you know, other pink tide leaders. Mm. Um, he, uh, he refused to let Evo Morales fly over Ecuador when Evo Morales was fleeing uh, far-right Christian fascist violence, right? So that's what's been going on for the past few years is increased austerity, increased power for the IMF, the destruction of the project of Korea, um, and just a push to uh, you know, privatize as much as possible. And just to, you know, paint the picture a little bit more uh, clear to people about like the economy of Ecuador, you know, Ecuador is around 17 million people. Um, Its main industries are petroleum and food processing, textiles and wood products and chemicals. You know, so oil is extremely important and you have a state owned majority in that, which is always a bad scenario. Um, if you, uh, you know, in the context of the United States and the IMF, we're always trying to come after uh, those, those resources. Um, you know, so, so Moreno took horrible IMF loans, increased austerity, pri- started privatizing parts of the central banking system, uh, raised oil prices for people in Ecuador, which is, you know, very damaging to folks. Um, you know, and he essentially, he turned his back on the United, uh, sorry, on Korea and toward uh, the United States and the IMF. So let me see. And so now let's talk about the other two people who were coming up uh, against Oroz um, in, the, in this most recent election. Coming into this week, um, they're, you know, when they were counting the votes and it's very, very close. I mean, I think we're somewhere around like 99% of the votes have been counted. Um, oh, actually, sorry. Uh, it just—it also needs to be noted that Moreno did everything that he could to prevent uh, Correa um, f- or anybody associated with him participating in this election, right? So that includes banning political parties, uh, trying to ban Arose from running in the first place. Uh, anyone who basically had any association with Correa, you know, basically just throwing out the book on any kind of democratic project. You need to understand the context of this election to understand uh, what's what's going on here, right? This 
this isn't just a normal, you know, people show up and register to vote, um, you know, people show up and, and declare themselves as candidates. This has been a fight to make sure that people are able to have their voice heard. Um, so now we are at 99% of the votes totaled. Uh, and it, again, you know, Correa's, you know, uh, somebody associated with Correa, uh, Arroz, is, looks like he's going to win out. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about his platform later. Um, but now there is a very, very tight race uh, between uh, Yaku Perez, and, um, who is an indigenous leader um, with some pretty interesting um, and suspicious uh, positions, I must say so. Um, but he is sort of being framed in the Western press as this kind of eco-socialist leader. And we'll get to a little bit more in, into depth on that later. Uh, and his, for, and he is basically neck and neck um, with Guemo Lasso, who is an ex-Coca-Cola executive, um, you know, a super <laughs> wealthy businessman, somebody who is constantly uh, running uh, for office and, and for the presidency. Um, Perez was actually up, um, up until uh, I believe early today. Um, but right now it is looking like it will be a, a runoff between uh, Lasso and, uh, and, and the Rose uh, in, the, in the final election on, on, in April, right? So basically a continuation of a, you know, a, a, a social democratic or socialist project in Ecuador versus you know, far right IMF politics. And yeah, how much do we want to get into Yaku Perez? Um, I, I definitely want to get into him. I just want to like put the positive agenda up first. Okay, why, cool. why we're like, why we like Rose, why we like the continuation of the Korea project. We were talking about the history uh, of the country earlier. Um, you know, Oroz did a really great interview uh, in Jackman magazine, which we can post or put in the show notes or something maybe later. Um, you know, he's proposed one, obviously dealing with the COVID crisis as soon as possible. Um, he wants to give $1,000 to a million Ecuadorian families in their first week of government. It should also be noted that they use the U.S. dollar in Ecuador. Um, he want, and and that, that proposal, by the way, it should also be noted that Perez, who people are now trying to portray as this, again, like more left-wing candidate, like a lot of people in the U.S. are making this kind mm-hmm. of statement, said that that proposal um, would be a waste because those families would probably use that money to buy beer. Which right? is like, honestly... I, there's a lot more in this um, Ben Norton gray zone piece on Perez, but that's, I don't, if that's like, that's all you need to really hear. Right? And there's more than the Norton piece out there too. There's a lot right. of other people who've been doing, doing that, that, mm. uh, that reporting, but absolutely. Mm. Uh, you know, that's definitely, you know, um, should give you kind of implication as to where this person's standing on a lot of these issues. Um, but Rose also wants to repatriate money uh, taken from the country. We're talking about places like Miami and Europe. Uh, we talk about a lot on this country, uh, sorry, on, on this show about how, um, big of an issue that is, is not being able to one, control your own currency, but also to control, um, prevent people from just basically being able to extract all of the money out of the country whenever they please. Um, so he wants to make sure that those kind of very wealthy people um, are forced to participate in the society they you know, allegedly are a part of. Uh, he wants to obviously fight for vaccination uh, for frontline workers as soon as possible, which has already been a huge scandal uh, you know, with high up mm-hmm. government officials in the Moreno government getting it first, um, you know, he wants to rebalance, um, you know, societal roles between men and women. Um, and he really, and this is why he's going to be such a threat and why you're going to see so much nonsense about him and the Korea project going forward. He opposes unipolarity, right? They want to continue to have relations uh, with China and with Russia. Um, and they want to fight for Latin American integration, right? Which again, is a very positive program, but not a 
program that's going to be very positive to the United States State Department. Yeah, just a note on Korea. Um, there's this 2007 story in Reuters. Ecuador wants a military base in Miami, and this is because Korea made it said if you want to keep your base in Ecuador, uh, then we get to open one on Miami, which is very uh, funny uh, position to put the U.S. government in. So, and that's one of his, you know, anti-imperial uh, um, uh, policies. I read a book, um, "The Ebb of the Pink Tide," is a Pluto Press. Mm book and it was written um after when moreno was in power so and you know lula i think a prisoner like things weren't looking good for the pink tide broadly and so this mm. is, it's a little bit more um skeptical of the pink tide um treatment um but it's interesting the relationship that korea had with the state department because you know he did this stuff and and um the assange stuff also mm. and but also had a police riot in 2010 that he literally like the sta- Hillary Clinton State Department had to come to his defense. And, you know, you see the the why they want to escape unipolarity or right and have a more mm-hmm. multipolar world, because you don't want to have to de- depend on Hillary Clinton to say like because because it forced Korea into a position of saying, hey, we're not anti-imperialist. We're not um, uh, anti-American because, you know, all of a sudden. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I think like with this. Uh, I guess the second wave of the pink tide coming in now, I think it's just, it's interesting to note these sorts of like um, well, ebbs and flows. It's it's a lesson that Lula talks about. Like yeah. Lula in his most recent interviews has said, like, we thought that we could work with the beast. Like we thought that we could have some form of cordial relations with the United States mm-hmm. um, and avoid basically, you know, being ostracized like Cuba is, right? Or like Venezuela is even, right? And he would, you know, as we talk about a lot on TMBS and have continued to do so on this show, there is a clear line uh, between the United States government and the lawfare against, uh, against Lula. Right. They wanted to get him out of power. They were willing to wage, uh, you know, covert war against him, just like they were willing to do it in Bolivia. Um, and just like we know that they are prepared to do it in the case of Ecuador. Um, so what we are seeing from these pink tide leaders now is more and more um, comfort and just understand that there really just isn't any other choice um, in the fight against U.S. imperialism. Um, and uh, were you saying that Yaku Perez had basically the OAS line on different well, area coups? That's what that's what I want. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to get to um, as well, right? I know there are, you know, Perez. I, I, I there are some people on the left who are anti-imperial, so I think sometimes their first reaction is to run to maybe the most conspiratorial. Um, sides on things. And I don't think that it's helpful when you have so much that uh, is very clear. Uh, You know, Perez, you know, is running on a kind of like, you know, they use the word eco-socialist, but in my opinion, much more of a, uh, you know, just general like ecology, you know, platforms like ride your bicycle more, stuff like that. Avoid extractive industries, right? Which is all well and good um, if you're a country like the United States, but if you're a country that still very much is in development because they were purposefully underdeveloped, um, you know, to just leave things in the ground is not necessarily um, the best solution. But dropping that argument aside, like let's not even deal with that. Um, Perez is somebody who is or has in the past. Um, worked against the Korea movement. So in 2017, uh, he stood with the right wing of, of the country against Len Moreno. And even though we know who Moreno became, um, this was not some kind of principled, uh, you know, rejection of Moreno because he's like, oh, I think he's going to betray the left. It was because he was an extension of the left wing project, right? Um, and what we've already seen um, from from 
other right-wing members, other right-wing people who have run for president, including Lasso, they have said that they will all align against Aruz in a uh, in a general election, right? Um, so there is a likelihood. Um, is, it, we'll see what happens now, since it looks like he's not going to be the runner-up. Um, you know, if he if he joins again, but the history um, is very clear on that. And I would also just note a few other positions. Uh, Perez is somebody who said uh, that you know who celebrated Lula and Dilma's imprisonment, right, and said that he hopes the same thing happens in Ecuador. He is somebody who uh, supported the coup against uh, Evo Morales. Uh, he is somebody who said that he would sign a free trade agreement with the United States, somebody who said that he wouldn't work uh, with China, right? It's just, it's, it's don't get fooled by people who want to paint a picture without actually looking at the geopolitical realities of folks, right? Like it's all well and good to like try to tell ourselves a kind of story about people and they say like, wow, look, it looks like there's, you know, kind of like indigenous, you know, ecological warrior who's coming, who's rising up uh, for his country, but take a little bit of time and look at the platform and look at who who they're aligning themselves with when there is a very clear left alternative. If they're rhyming with imperial structures, then, you know, that's not the leader you're looking for. And I can't remember the, the the Brazilian who said this, but there's a line that said, uh, you know, environmentalism without anti-capitalism is just gardening. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that, that's pretty unfair to gardening. I kind of... Gardening is good. I have a little in, you know... Like but you've got to get to the source of these things, right? Right. Um, and, and anyways, so this is, you know, just a sort of introduction. What happens? It looks like there is going to be a very long, um, you know, campaign that's going to be going on for the next couple of months. We bring all of this up and some of the kind of funkier things, not to slime anybody, um, but to say there's already a lot of uncertainty about this election. Right. There is already a lot of unease around because there is the fear um, that people are going to that, that they might start rejecting the results of the election, which only gives Lena Moreno um, an opportunity maybe to extend his position. And uh, before we end this segment, uh, Matt, there's that last clip that I had um, of uh, Andreas Aros, who, who, again, oh, is yep. the front runner. Um, and hopefully will be you know, the next leader of Ecuador, um, talking about some moves that we are seeing from Moreno to increase privatization in the country, increase privatization of the central bank in the last, in the last um, section of his presidency, um, despite getting a very, very clear mandate uh, that his tenure um, and his vision for the country is over. Manifestamos nuestra abierta oposición a la ley de privatización del Banco Central que ha enviado el día de ayer el señor presidente saliente Lenín Moreno a pocos días de dejar su gobierno. No vamos a permitir que se apruebe una ley en donde contempla que los cargos que dejará él nombrados tengan un periodo más largo que la próxima administración de la presidencia de la república. Eso no es admisible. No es admisible que se quiera privatizar la gobernanza del Banco Central para que los banqueros puedan seguir en el ejercicio del poder 
independientemente de la voluntad democrática del pueblo ecuatoriano. Y finalmente, no vamos a permitir que dejen cambiada la normativa para que cuando llegue un gobierno soberano representativo de su pueblo no pueda modificar las normas relativas a la reestructuración de créditos. Por favor, la... Yeah, and, you know, for people who are listening, um, you know, basically he's saying that they're not going to allow um, the Moreno government, again, you know, who is is not running because he has literally no approval because he has failed as a president and basically turned the country, um, you know, into an open garage sale uh, to the IMF and, and Western Western powers. Um, that they are not going to allow him to continue this this program in the waning time in, in the waning part of his uh, of, of his presidency. Um, I know we've gone for a while, uh, Matt, but there's something I want to actually include as part of this segment too. Mm-hmm. These last two stories, um, because I just I want to remind people of uh, of the stakes. Right? Um, it's the it's the uh, section called Justice in Bolivia and Brazil. Um, Because one thing, the reason that we're coming in hard about this, we want people to understand what, what's happening there. And we are, you know, not indulging in a kind of fantasy that like, okay, yeah, we support, you know, Arosa, you know, coming into power, but also it was so fine and dandy that he's getting challenged from the left, maybe, right? We are coming in hard about this because people need to understand how high the stakes are, right? And these two stories about hopefully uh, justice being seen, Right, should remind people of just what the right wing is capable of in this part of the world. Um, so we have this first one up here. So this is a hopeful story. These are two hopeful stories um, in the you know in the wake of absolute tragedy. Um, so in the first story, um, in Bolivia, uh, after we saw this horrendous coup. Um, and a coup that was defeated by the people, by the social movements, um, despite U.S. backing, despite support from American liberal media all across the board, um, the people were victorious. It still saw serious violence. Um, and retired General Luis Valverde is being charged for being responsible in the Sincata massacre, which took place a week after the coup against President Evo Morales in 2019. I think people might have forgotten the horrible scenes that we were seeing after the coup in Bolivia, just disgusting. And the fact that there's still people who have jobs in commentary uh, at respected institutions who have not had to uh, have any repercussions for their support of this coup is disgusting. Who are applauding it as a victory for democracy. Yes. Um, but this is just and is correct and is right that the people involved um, should be, um, you know, tried and held accountable for this. Um, so that is, you know, a reminder of what happened in Bolivia. And is again, you know, something that we've said, you know, with Morales and, you know, w- with, with Morales basically being back in, in the, uh, the social movements, being back involved with the fight for the people and Luis Arque, um, you know, reinvigorating Moss, um, there will have to be massive uh, reshufflings of the state apparatus and the military. Um, so that's an encouraging sign that they are doing that. And in, in Brazil, 
in the wake of far-right violence, right, again, supported by the United States' continued destabilization of the country, first with their involvement um, against Dilma Rousseff, and then in their unjust imprisonment of, uh, of Lula da Silva, right, through lawfare, with very willing participants from the Brazilian state and the Brazilian judiciary um, in the service and with the, very, with the serious help of the United States uh, FBI. Um, the serious far-right violence. Uh, and, and one of the casualties of that was Mariela Franco, uh, who was a visionary socialist leader, um, who was brutally gunned down in the street um, with, in, in, by people who have very close ties, by the way, uh, to Bolsonaro and the Bolsonaro family at large. Uh, but a Brazilian court um, will now try Mario Franco's murderers. You could scroll down a little bit, Matt. I guess I hold on one second, y'all. Um, basically, I want to make sure I get everybody's name right. Um, the Rio de Janeiro Justice Court on Tuesday confirmed that a court will f- try former police officer Rani Lessa and former, uh, and former military officer Alicio Queros, uh, both of whom are charged with the murder of Socialism and Liber- Liberty Party, PSOL, C- Councilwoman Mariela Franco, and her driver, Anderson Gomez. Um, it's not enough of a reckoning for what's happened in that country and, you know, the inclusion of the police force uh, and the far right militias in that kind of terror. But it is a step in the right direction to fight um, for justice and for healing. And just you know, uh, the- one detail here. Franco's murder yeah. occurred uh, on the night of March 14, 2018 in Rio. Her vehicle was shot 13 times by an HK MP5 submachine gun, a high precision weapon used only by elite police forces. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. And this is the thing is the stakes are just extremely, extremely high. And we just you just can't play around with this stuff and you just can't indulge fantasy on this kind of thing. Um, So solidarity with everybody there, you know, really, really, um, you know, a hopeful moment. I mean, hopefully the you know, we should take from this rather than fixating on the pitfalls is. The people are, you know, are, are rising up and there could be a serious return to pink tide governments all across Latin America, which is a hopeful thing for the world. I mean, that's the thing is like you look at Central and South America and the reaction to neoliberalism was well underway before 2008. Um, mm-hmm. Like and include like Korea. Uh, I can't I don't know the names of the guys, but it was people nominally against neoliberal policy. And then once they got into power, they did what Lenin Moreno did. And you revert to actually just doing whatever the IMF says. Uh, but I, 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 it is like where we need to take the cues from, especially like the fight against neoliberalism globally, um, because it's just much more um, uh, evolved there, it mm-hmm. seems like. Exactly, man. All right, I'm going to lose my voice if I don't uh, take a break now. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to take a qu- uh, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back uh, for patrons in the post game, where we got a lot of fun stuff coming for everybody. Yeah, we'll hit you with the post game around 10:30, folks. Yeah, so, so uh, Patreon.com/slash/LeftReckoning. Uh. <laughs> and next week, uh, next week, uh, we're going to be joined by the Value Labor Report to talk about Alabama uh, and the union fight there. And also be joined by uh, Grace Blakely to talk uh, the uh, corona economy, financialization, and some ways that we can fight back. So look forward to that. Very fun. All right, folks. See you next time. (laughs) 